This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Adventure on a Dare, and the author is Fritz Brandel, and Fritz joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Fritz. And how are you? Well, it sounds like, uh, you know, a bunch of kids hanging around saying, I bet you can't do that, and I bet I can, And but this is a whole lot more dramatic. Uh, we're talking about canoe, we're talking about the ocean, we're talking about ending up in prison in Cuba. Wow, what a story. <laughs> well, it is. A true story. Yes, it is. It's a true story. It's your true story. Now, obviously, big question. You know, people might say, what are you, crazy? When you started out to do this canoe trip, tell us about what, how it was mapped out, your, your whole dream of going on the ocean in a canoe. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't really a dream. <laughs> it, it was a dare. <laughs> uh, who dared you? Well, a good friend of mine. Of we're course, in, a good we're friend. In bar, we're at <laughs> a bar having probably one too many drinks. And uh, we're, we were talking about just challenges and things to do. And, when, and I brought up the idea of canoeing here and there or doing things. And my friend uh, said that he'd like to see someone go from Staten Island, New York, to Los Angeles through the Panama Canal. <laughs> well, we were talking about it until he finally he says, "Well, I dare you to do that," and that's really how the whole how the uh, the trip started. Well, you're not new to the canoe. I mean, you've done a lot of adventures in your life. Well, prior prior to oh yeah, I've done some adventures, but prior to that, I, I taught some canoeing at a at a uh, uh, camp, summer camp. So that was it. That was the extent of your training, right? Right. <laughs> Never out in the ocean with a canoe, but <laughs> Never out in the ocean. That that is uh wow. That is uh so tell us a little give us a little uh you know highlights of the trip as you left Staten Island. What was on your mind? When did this happen? Well, this was back in nineteen seventy and uh it it was a matter of uh just Doing something that no one else has ever done in the challenge, it was a matter of leaving, going across the Hudson, looking out over the Hudson Bay and going out in, into the ocean with a canoe. The first day I was out was, was, a scary, was a very scary day. I ran into a big wall of fog on the Hudson River. And it was like being in an amusement park because you couldn't, I couldn't even see the front end of the canoe. But I could hear horns blowing and, and oh my goodness. traffic <laughs> moving, and you know you, you can hear all these noises and, and barges and, and big ships going up and down the, the Hudson River, and that's when uh, I accidentally hit one. And, uh, <laughs> don't don't want to say too much about that, but it was not. See, this is I got to point out that this book is. Uh, a little while ago, I, I, I reached out to Christ to find out why I've done all these things. And this book is uh, back in my drinking days and fun days and horse-around days and uh, 
and that's what, what put me into, into a lot of these situations that I ran into. How old were you when you did this? Uh, I was uh, 24 years old. 24 and out of your mind. And <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll read about it in the book. There's more to it than that. Well, I'm sure there is. But there's more to it. But that's it. probably what most people say, right? But, but the, the, the funny part is that Andy, the guy that dared me, he paid for everything. He bought the canoe and bought the supplies and everything. And when, we, when I was leaving uh, Staten Island, uh, he gave me a dime. Back then, you could use a payphone for a dime. He says, here's a dime when you're ready to come home and give me a call. So when you can't go any further, pull in somewhere yeah. and call you, and he'll, he'll come get you. Huh? Right, right. That's exactly what the dime was for. I think I still have that dime. <laughs> <laughs> no, I used it here and there to, to call back just for information. So when you finally got out in the ocean itself, I mean, how far off of the coastline are you? Well, Actually, I, follow, I just followed the coastline down, and I spent a lot of time in the intercoastal waterway. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the whole story really revolves around all the people that I met, what they did for me, and uh, especially the people that, like, let's say they saw me on a, in the news or in the paper. Well, you must have been getting a lot of news coverage, right? Yes, in the beginning. Well, it, I did, yeah. So, And, and it just was their help and the people I met and the... Uh, the food that they gave me and the drinks that they gave me, you know, things like that. But there's also the 35-foot swells in the ocean that you're having to deal with. Well, yeah, that was the first, <laughs> that was the first time see, I was supposed to go around the Gulf, up around Louisiana and, you know, places over to Texas and down. But uh, in the book, I met someone and talked me into take, trying to take a shortcut. He, <laughs> <laughs> from Key West to the Yucatan Peninsula. so Just straight across, huh? Just straight across. We're going right out into the open well, ocean. Not, not realizing that the golf current was stronger than I am. Oh, my goodness. And uh, so, But the first, time, uh, the first time I went out, I, I hit uh, hurricane weather, and uh, the Coast Guard had to come out and get me. Wow. And you went back after that? Yes, I did. I went home and got resupplied and uh, went back and tried it again, and... Uh, that's when my boat drifted into Cuba, and uh, so so when you when you finally realized that this island was Cuba, I mean, when you finally, how did you? What, what was going on in your mind as you saw yourself? You must have seen the 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 land, and did you even know it was Cuba? Well, to be honest with you, no, I didn't. I it, I, it was my my third night out in the out in the Gulf. And I don't care what anybody says. When you're out there by yourself and you see a light, you go for it. <laughs> yeah, you go for it. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. You don't care. It's not like, oh, that's a light on, on, in Cuba and I'm going to have to go around it. No, you go for the light. You know, and it, it, it's the old story, you know, the lighthouse, the lighthouse keeper, and, you know, the lighthouse keeper and his daughter or whatever the case may be. This is what you're thinking of while you're paddling towards it. But uh, but really, what happened was uh, I found out later on. See, I I ended up on Cuban soil, uninvited. Un, no, undetected. Undetected <laughs> and uninvited. <laughs> and uninvited. But that's what Fidel was upset about—that somebody made it from the United States to his island without being detected. 
Oh, my goodness. Now, here's a guy that they finally pick up that has a canoe with two life jackets, two seats, two this, two that, but only one person. And that's uh, when, when you put two and two together, that's what uh, Fidel was a little bit upset about. Oh, there's somebody else loose on his island. Well, see, I made, I made it to the lighthouse. I, I was on land, and then I, I, I made it to, close to the lighthouse. And then I was on land and saw where I had to paddle around into a, a bay area to get to the lighthouse. And when I hit the bay area, the story goes as follows. <laughs> uh, all of a sudden, blam, 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 and, you know, there's four flares up in the air, machine guns fire, firing at me. Oh, my and, goodness. And... Uh, they were yelling at me in, in, a, in a language. I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you knew you, you, I knew you I, were in trouble, right? I knew I was in trouble when, when all that happened. So. My goodness. So they take you in. Yeah. Did you ever meet Fidel? No, I never met Fidel. And I, it's not in the book, but I do think... According to uh, the guys I was in prison with, but then I don't know if they knew exactly either. Uh, I may have met his brother, but other than that... Uh, who's, no. in ch- who's in charge now? Who's in charge now? Yeah, I believe his brother's in charge now right. in Cuba. Right. Yeah. What's one of the biggest challenges that you've had just in general of, you know, give us a little taste of what you had to deal with in Cuba? Because I guess you were put in prison. I was put in a prison a very short period of time, but then I was put in like a holding house where they send people that are trying to get off the island or whatever the case may be. And uh, I spent time with six of the most wanted men from the United States (laughs) uh, that all hijacked planes to Cuba. Wow. And uh, the one person that I was with, and this this is what... The book is really about is this. Uh, I was in prison with a guy called Lester Perry, who was head, who was uh, at one time head of the Communist Party, and de railroaded railroad cars and blew up oil wells and all this other stuff. And he hijacked a plane to Cuba, thinking that you know he'd be free. Well, he's in prison for the rest of his. So you talk about men without a country. These mm. guys are men without a country. Mm. And. Uh, uh, one of the things that, that Fidel, or not Fidel, that uh, Lester Perry told me, now you got to remember, this guy was head of the Communist Party in the United States at one time. And the point of the book is, the easiest thing in the world to do is to be a communist in a free country, but don't try and be a communist in a communist country. So I kind of take that saying and, and try and tell people, you know, the easiest thing in the world to do is to be anything you want to be in a free country. Right. In the United States. We, we take it so for granted. We take it, you know, if you think you're going to stand in the capital, in front of the capital uh, of another country and burn the flag and and spit at the capital and all this other things and be alive to tell about the next day, I really don't think so. So there must have been a lot of concern about you being some kind of a secret agent, huh? Well, at one time, see, the, the, see, I was a pawn. I was used by the U.S. government. Not to get myself in trouble with them, but I, I, that's the way I feel and a lot of other people feel. Because 
I was in Cuba. They picked me up. They questioned me. Uh, they they were taking they were taking care of me. Okay, and then all of a sudden, the U.S. government goes out and picks up some fishermen. If you look back at 1971, picks up some fishermen off of uh, out in the Gulf. Well. The fishermen are picked up, and they're arrested, and, and now Cuba has me, but then they go out and pick up some more people off out of the Gulf, and now it's just a matter of trading back and forth. Uh, but the only difference in my situation is, in order to get a bigger dollar or whatever they were trying to do, uh, they got me for espionage for the simple reason that uh, I was by myself. The thing is, what... For people to to not look at their lives as 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 nothing, and to look at their lives as as something that is guided and taken care of, you know, give them moment, momentum to do the things that they want to do and get things done. Yeah, everyone has some kind of. Sometimes it's a maybe you'd call it a wild idea, but sometimes they're not that wild. They're just things that would be challenging. And people, for whatever reason, are afraid to do it. Right. And it, it, it could be, or not even afraid, but sometimes it's, it gets too complicated to do in this day and age. Uh, that's why, uh, I mean, I have this little phrase that I wrote to the adventure on uh, what you do today is harder than yesterday, but easier than tomorrow. So do it. I mean, do it. Get it done. Do what you want to do. Live in the moment. Live in the moment. My story reaches out to everyone. Everyone that reads that will read this book will relate to something in that book that they either did, wanted to do, wish they did, thought they did. You know, they're going to relate to something and and uh, and bring back a little part of their past and their life because the book is really a modern day. Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn travel. <laughs> right. You know, it, it, it's just a modern day Tom Sawyer Huckleberry. It's a true story, though. I mean, everything in the, in the book is true. It's just, uh, uh, you know, it, it's just put together to humor the person. It's a very quick read, uh, fun book to read. Sounds like a movie to me. Well, <laughs> that's what everybody says, but... I just want to get my book out. I, I, <laughs> I have a per. I it just happened. Uh, I've given some of these away and stuff like that, and I have somebody that their eighty nine year old grandmother picked it up off the coffee table, and that's all she does is read. And she read the book and she loved it. She says it just brought back some good memories. Well, that makes you feel good. Yes, it does. I mean, they come, and this person didn't know me at all, never met me, didn't know me, and read the book, and she says, this is, this is so nice. It's not, you know, it's not a do-it book. It's not a political book. It's a, not a cure book. It's just a story. It's an adventure. It's an adventure. <laughs> yeah, it takes you right out of the world of today and takes you on this adventurous trip right. with Fritz. Well, Fritz, this is the first of, you say, two more books? Yes. See, I hold, I hold the world's record in snowmobiling, and I have another canoe trip. 
my goodness. Are you in the Guinness Book of Records? Well, to be honest with you, it, I was in the book, World Book of Records, but uh, uh, the U.S. government made Guinness take it out of the book. Oh, jeez. Because what I did was so illegal that uh, <laughs> they didn't want anybody. They don't want anybody to try and break the record. So. That's that's crazy. Oh my goodness! Well, Fritz, tell us how to get your book. You can uh, right now. You can go to uh, I got Amazon. You know, dot com. You can you can go on on the web and buy it, or you can go to authorhouse dot com and buy it through them, or just go to Fritz Brandel, my name dot com. And that will click onto a site that will get you to it. Well, that's Fritz Brandel, F R I T Z S P R A N D E L dot com. That's right. Well, Fritz, thanks for being on Author Talk. Really enjoyed talking to you about this incredible adventure. Well, thank you. That was Fritz Brandel. He is the author of his book, Adventure on a Dare. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. They flourish on a secluded farm 3,500 feet above sea level in Hinotega, Nicaragua. These coffee beans grow in the shade of hardwood trees and banana plants, thriving in the rich organic soil. Shade-grown coffee grown at higher elevation has a better quality. There are two benefits, a slower growing cycle for the plants that allows time for the sugars in the bean to mature and the natural composting from the nitrogen-producing canopy. And now you can order this international gourmet coffee online at nicaraguasbestcoffee.com. Order 12-ounce and 16-ounce bags or save with a discounted price by ordering in large quantities. Three different coffee beans available, Arabica, Marigold Gaipe, and Green Oro. Prepare to enjoy the richness and the soothing flavor of some of the best-tasting coffee in the world. Order online at nicaraguasbestcoffee.com and enjoy Central American flavor, aroma, and richness of Nicaragua's best coffee. It's the chance for you to hear firsthand from authors on why they write their books in their own words. It's called iUniverse Radio, hosted by Steve Jorgensen every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio, every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. Sending a heartfelt message is one of the best ways to touch someone, to touch the heart. But it's easy to forget birthdays, anniversaries, and other special occasions. Imagine how many lives you would touch if it was easy to send those heartfelt messages. Send Out Cards provides a way for you to send a personalized greeting card to a friend, loved one, or business associate in less than 60 seconds from the convenience of your computer. You can even add a gift or gift card. Send Out Cards is about helping people reach out to those around them. It's amazing what a simple message can do. Send Out Cards helps you act on your promptings to reach out and change lives. Show host Michelle Bateman has learned through personal experience what it means to be an eagle by always working to be your best self. Please join our conversation on Send Out Cards Radio with Michelle Bateman to learn what it means to be an eagle on toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. 
helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Averton, and the author is Terry Pellman, and Terry joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Terry. Hello, thanks for having me on. This is a suspense thriller dealing with terrorism, dealing with a a really a small town. The unex, you know, most people would say that would be very unexpected to happen in the average small town. But in your book, you take us violently into the world of terrorism right from the start. I wanted to uh, start the action right from the beginning. <laughs> well, you certainly did, and it drew me right in and. So why write the book? Let's start there. Why? Well, what, what's, the, what's the fascination of this kind of story for you? I have for a long time had an interest in domestic extremist groups, uh, primarily the uh, super patriot groups uh, back uh, starting with the, the Minutemen in the 1960s, not, not the Minutemen who are in the news now as the, the border uh, patrol people. But the Minutemen were uh, uh, like America's first, uh, uh, I guess, uh, prototypical militia group. Yeah, the militia, the the right wing militia. And not, of course, not all militias are the same. And uh, the Minutemen, their beginning was to be a super patriot armed group that would be the final line of defense for the United States in the case of a communist takeover of America. But they got a somewhat off topic after a while and got into some law breaking and ended up going by the wayside after several years. So that's the mentality of this terrorist group in your book? That kind of mentality? Yes, but one thing I mix in is the current political discord that we're going through here. A lot of talk about how uh, our national leadership and the, what we call the mainstream media has lost touch with the average person, especially those who live in what you would call middle America, sometimes derisively referred to as flyover country. And you know, we're hearing calls for uh, everything from enforcement of state sovereignty to even comments about possible secession. And part of the premise of Averton is that this group takes it to the extreme to the point where they actually try to break apart the country and establish a, a heartland nation separate from the coast. So the more conservative thinking goes to the extreme. Well, I, I, I'm reluctant to use the word conservative because it, I, I, I guess I prefer the term uh, reactionary, militaristic reactionary uh, tendencies, because a con- you know most conservatives still believe in law and order. Right, these people take the law into their own hands. Right, they decide that the you know one of the premises of the book is that the Constitution is a fragile document, and it only works as long as we believe in it. And these people decide uh, that that uh, while uh, they view others as perverting the Constitution, they, in reality, they're the ones who, who brush it aside for their own goals. Well, let's talk about some of the characters. Right from the start, 
we meet Laura Bond. Tell us a little bit about Laura. Laura Bond is a 40-year-old woman who is introduced to uh, the main characters as the niece of uh, some friends of theirs who came from Boston uh, to have a sabbatical away from her high-pressured life as a securities trader in a large investment firm there. And she's, you know, she presents herself as somebody just needs some place to, uh, to go and relax, take a break, uh, live in a little loft apartment and do some landscape painting and works in the bookstore for uh, her aunt, who is, um, well, part of the, you know, part of the overall story, of course. But she has a whole nother agenda. Right. She, she is part of uh, the group who is, set, you know, setting about to form this breakaway Heartland Nation. And she is charged with uh, compromising the chief of police in the small town so that the group can, can operate freely, un, unhampered by law enforcement, in setting the stage for what they hope to be a, a very big deal. So who is the chief of police? Well, in, in, in the beginning, the chief of police of Averton uh, is an older gentleman, but he, he dies into the story, and the chief of detectives, Kelly Hastings, who really is eligible to retire, is more or less thrust into the position on an emergency basis. Laura Bond, of course, has special talents, special, a special allure that uh, allows her to compromise Kelly Hastings. So we've got uh, romance... We've got uh, uh, marital affairs. We've got all the above. That's right. That's right. It's all there in Everton. Now, Kelly, he has the sole responsibility to uh, ferret out this. uh, Does he understand what's going on? Not at the beginning. He does not at the beginning, no. As a matter of fact, he, uh, he's coping with a situation where the prime, uh, you know, you might say that the prime protagonist is someone who has been very close to he and his wife for for some time, and he does not quickly pick up on what's happening. Now, who is that? A Franklin Norwood, an, 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 a retired foundry owner in the town, who actually was one of the original Minutemen and formed a more violent offshoot of the Minutemen later on called the Continental Army. Turns out that Franklin Norwood went to prison on weapons charges and upon his parole disappeared and took a new identity. And he is good friends with Kelly. That's right, that's right. And And Kelly's wife, Molly. Right. Norwood's wife becomes almost like a surrogate mother to uh, Kelly's wife, Molly. Very trusted relationship. 
very much so she confides an awful lot of things to her friends. And so we have that uh, scenario, this devious deception going on uh, with Franklin and uh, using Kelly then and his wife Molly. That's right. That's right. Now, is is Laura tied to Franklin? Well, she, uh, yes. You She's know, she part of the group? Yes, yeah, she is introduced as a niece to the Norwoods, but it turns out she's really Franklin Norwood's daughter. Ah, okay. And, and of course, she gets introduced to Kelly, and she, she is looking for information, too. She's looking for uh, the opportunity to basically get uh, Kelly under the control of herself and her wow. father. So we got blackmail going on somewhere. Right, and add a twist of a man <laughs> using his daughter in the way that he uses her. Right. Now, does uh, Louis Welch play a large part in this? He's kind of the the, the kneecapper, the enforcer. Ah, the he's group. he's the guy does the dirty work. Yes, yes. So we we start out with all kinds of explosions going on in this town, and then I guess things settle down, and we start learning the lay of the land. Is that that's it? right? The town goes through their re, re, you know uh, recovery period. A lot of people injured. A lot of people killed. Several people killed. Yes. And and obviously would just uh, immobilize a small community. It would just bring it to its knees. That's right. Uh-huh. That's right. The town is so... Uh, Everybody damaged. knows each other. And- right. Everybody knows each other. And the National Guard has to come in to uh, provide power. And it's a very helpless situation for the town. An added element is that Kelly's wife, Molly, uh, you know, these are 50-ish people who have just been married for three years. She is an elementary school principal, and some of the victims of the bombings were children who were killed, children in her school. Mm. So she is just devastated. All around. Well, let's talk about the opening scene. It's it's so dramatic, and it just kind of sets the whole uh, feeling for the book. Let's go in some detail about the opening scenes. Well, it's really late in the evening, uh, an uneventful evening in the small town, and uh, everybody's uh, just relaxed. Suddenly, the uh, of course it's it's late late in the evening, and uh, all of a sudden, a couple motorcycle riders come upon a power substation, and they, you know, one takes off and goes over the fence and sets plastic explosives in strategic places on a number of the towers, sets the timers, and they resumes the ride with the, and they go away about a quarter of a mile, and as they watch their watches and the timer goes off, um, this power substation is just blown to smithereens, rendering the entire town uh, Helpless, more or less, and so the whole town is without electricity. We're just at the, with this explosion, and simultaneously, the National Guard armory explodes right in the town, right in the town, in the neighborhood, and that results in the civilian deaths. And so, damage. other other residential homes are going up in flames and explosions. Explosions, 
people trying to rescue their children, uh, people dying in very unpleasant ways. So it's the uh, nightmare that everybody thinks that will only happen in the big city has now happened in Averton. That's right. People are in their homes, uh, perhaps in their pajamas. Children are sleeping, and all of a sudden, their windows are blown out. Their houses are damaged. There's fire everywhere. And panic everywhere. Panic everywhere. Terror, panic. Confusion. Confusion. Wow. Well, that, unfortunately, could be reality in today's world. It probably will be. Which just puts a chill up your spine, you know, when you think about it. I've, I've always lived in a small town. We live in a small town now. I mean, small compared, you know, 100,000 is small to me. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that, that would uh, change everything. So do the townspeople get involved uh, to fight this, or is this a law enforcement only? Do, do you know, does the townspeople come alive to fight this? right-wing militia? Well, actually, what happens is the group poses as a civilian defense organization in response to the in response to the terrorist attacks without the people realizing that they are the ones who perpetuated them. Wow. So they come they kind of step in like we're coming to the rescue. Exactly, and of course, uh, what happens is people in other parts of the country start seeing this and thinking, you know, this is a good thing. You know, we should start groups like this, too. For protection. For protection and response, that's right. Makes sense. Makes of course, sense. Averton, beco- and Averton, of course, becomes the focus of the media. You know, the 24-hour media in the town is surrounded suddenly by news vans and people broadcasting from Averton 24 hours a day. So it becomes the whole focus of the nation. That's right. That's right, it does. And so that provides a perfect uh, platform for Franklin Norwood and his group to get the media exposure, and they're able to manipulate everything. And so it eventually sounds like there's some major confrontation with this heartland nation and maybe the rest of the, 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 the uh, main nation or the, uh, you know, out of Washington, D.C.? Is that what and we're talking about? What, and this is what the readers need to uh, find out by reading the book. That's exactly <laughs> right. There you go. There you go. Well, Terry, tell us how to get your book. Of course, it's available um, from the Author House Publishers website, uh, authorhouse.com. And it's available, of course, on websites such as Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Well, it sounds like a great movie. Well, I think it would have that potential. I I think it would be, uh, especially with the political uh, elements of things that are happening right now, I I think that would be an interesting prospect. Any other stories, spinoffs in the works? Uh, no spin-offs from this, but I, as most writers, I'm always writing. Well, Terry, we appreciate you being on Author Talk. Well, thanks for having me. It's been my pleasure. That was Terry Pellman. He is the author of his book, Averton. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. 
Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk. Brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Life and Death of a Playa. And the author is Timmy Ray, and Timmy joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Timmy. Hey, how you doing, Steve? Well, it's an interesting title because the life and death of a playa, and uh, playa, what does it mean by playa? I just did a, uh, just a play off the word player, you know, and just made it have a little more bite to it. Sometimes I think maybe I should have said player, but then in the end, I, I did it, should have did it just like I did it. You made a decision, and, and I think it has a good edge to it, because certainly your life has had an edge to it. Tell us yes, about your life and why you wrote the book, Timmy. My life, I've had a lot of accomplishments as well as a lot of failures in my life. Uh, and I basically uh, took a look at my life and the way it was going. And the way I got introduced to the lifestyle was as a child, I've seen a lot of people living the way I talked about in my book. And uh, it just intrigued me. And even though I had a good upbringing, I came up in a family with two parents, two loving parents, I might add, that were... Uh, Christian people. I grew up in the church and went to church every Sunday, but then I seen these people in the church doing all of this stuff, and um, I just gravitated toward that way, and I have to say that, you know, uh, there's been a force that's been trying to destroy me all my life, and that's what my book basically showed me, how uh, these forces, because see, I do believe that our steps are ordered from our birth, but then you got the adversary also that's trying to stop us from reaching our destiny. And from 
from a childhood, I can see how the adversary was trying to kill me all along. I mean, even from a young age, you know, I can look back and I can see how God's had his hands in my life all the way. You know, and I could have been dead a long, long, long time ago. But it just he just didn't see fit for it to happen. And out of all the troubles I've been through, and basically I just wanted to show people that's going through the same struggles that I've went through that there is a way out. You talk about the word destiny. What do you mean your destiny? I think everybody in life, well, I know everybody in life has a purpose. And to live out your purpose when you get to the end of wherever you're going before you leave this earth, you're going to fulfill your destiny, whatever it is that you were purposed in this life to do. The people that you're going to meet, the things that you're going to achieve, I don't believe anything happens in this world by accident. I think it's all ordained. Either everything's either ordained, God ordained, or God allowed. And that's what I believe. Nothing happens by accident. So you grew up as a child in a a religious home, but at the same time, you say, I was a wild child. Yeah, I was. I was a middle child, and um, anything that I could do, I did it. It's, it's almost like uh, the devil had a hold on me from the start and was trying to sift me like wheat, but it just um, it just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. I've been through a lot. I mean, been held hostage because of drug deals gone bad, had all kinds of sex partners, unprotected sex, and here I am today. I'm clean and still got my mind and free of diseases, and I think that's a blessing. So at a young age, you looked around, and even in this religious setting, you saw something going on that I, I guess had a great impact on you. even talk about your father. Yeah. Well, see, my dad, and he was one of the biggest players that I knew. And that. And what do you mean by a player? What's a player? A player, a player is a man that has a lot of different women, and that's a hustler. See, my dad, he wasn't a hustler in the streets. He worked. My dad uh, was a supervisor for 15 years, and he had his own trucking company. And so, to me, that's hustling. When you're always out trying to get money, however you do it, whether it's legal or illegal, it's still hustling. Um, and then he had women, too. He was married to my mom, of course. And uh, then he would bring his check home to my mom, and then he had all these outside women taking care of him. They were buying cars and clothes and giving money, and he pretty much groomed me to be the same way. You know, because I hung under my father because it seemed like my mom and my older sister and my younger brother really didn't want to have a lot to do with me. And for real, I didn't want to have a lot to do with them because the more time I spent around them, then I couldn't do what I wanted. So I was out doing whatever I wanted to do. So you let them do so you looked up to your father, even with, yeah, with all of this, uh, all of his affairs. Well, and the thing is, uh, I didn't see anything wrong with it because everybody else was doing it too. My uncles, all his friends, my cousins, you know, and growing up as a child and boy and seeing this, I'm thinking it's normal, you know, cause that's the world I grew up in and I'm seeing all these other people do it. So I'm like, I'm thinking it's normal. It wasn't until I got into my mid-30s where I started being convicted in my spirit that that's not the thing to do. As I started getting closer to God and getting back into the church, getting back to my roots, then a lot of these things start having less appeal to, like the selling drugs and the chasing women and stuff like that. You know, I started really wanting to settle down and start doing the right thing. 
So how does a child get hooked on drugs? Well, like I say, I was wild, Steve, and I wasn't, I was never scared of anything. In my book, you'll see, like, in the early part of my book, when I was, like, maybe three, four, maybe five, you know, back then, back in the 60s, we didn't have big wheels and stuff like that. We had tricycles and tractors and stuff like that. And we lived on this steep hill, and I took my tractor up to the top of the hill and rolled it down the hill, and when I got to the end, there was a gas station there, and a car pulled out, and I turned my tractor over, and... I got back up and took my tractor back up to the top of the hill and did it again. So, <laughs> as I was growing up... No I fear. Seen, no fear. No fear. I seen people, and as I was growing up, my uncles, my mother's brothers, they were slipping drinks in me every chance they got, you know, because my mother was real religious, and they would slip a drink in me for them to, for her to smell it on my breath and then go off on them. And... uh and they would laugh, you know, and joke about it. Yeah, they thought it was funny. Yeah. And so, and as a result, I started liking the taste of alcohol. So when they would leave, they would come over to my mom's house and put their bottles behind their couch and go across the street to my other cousin's house, and I was slipping their liquor. So as I'm growing up, around 11, 12, I'm seeing these people, you know, coming back from Vietnam, and my neighbors down the street were older than me, and they were all smoking marijuana. And I was like, well, let me have some, let me have some. So I started out like that, and then they let me smoke some marijuana with them. And uh, so I did that for some years, and then I started selling marijuana at the age of probably 16. And then and then I went on to, I guess, when I moved to Oklahoma City when I was 22, that's when I really got into cocaine. And a guy let me try it, and I liked it instantly. And what I found out that some people just have an addictive personality. And then it just went on from there, and I have a high tolerance. I had a high tolerance for everything, and things were, um, and I would look up, and then I was in a mess. Well, I got out of that, and then I moved back to Dayton at Christmas of 83, of 82. I um, started back uh, selling cocaine, and then I wasn't dabbling in it that much. And then about the mid to late 80s, I started getting into more volumes of it, so it was more readily available, so I started using more. And so then the next thing I know, man, I was just in a bad spot. And I got into that spot over and over again because of my greed, self-centeredness, and wanting to live that lifestyle. And at that moment in time, I guess the connection to what you were doing and how terrible your life was didn't all come together for you at, you know, when you're in the middle of it. No, you can't see. You can't see. You have a problem when you're in the middle of a problem. It's until you come to an end. See, you have. I, I really believe that you have to be thoroughly mortified. You have to come to a point where you're so low in your life, and you look around and say, "Damn, how did I get here?" And then you realize maybe it's the drugs. See, before I couldn't. I didn't believe it was the drugs. Well, I just had a bad day, or things didn't happen like I had planned for them to do. And then I'll try it again, you know. And I had some great enablers. A lot of my buddies that I ran with, they were, quote, unquote, big boys. You know, they handled weight and stuff like that. And they would supply me, you know, if I had, a, if I came short, they would supply me again. So I just, it just kept perpetuating. And it wasn't until late 89 when there was a, a big drug bust in Dayton, Ohio, and I was reduced 
to selling rocks that I realized, hey, I got a problem. I started thinking about breaking in and a, robbing a gas station. And I was like, wait a minute, there's something wrong. Because I've never robbed anything in my life. Never. And here I'm thinking about robbing a gas station to get some drugs. I'm like, I have a problem. And at that point, I checked myself in the tree. How old were you? I was, I was about 29, going on 30. What was your experience at the treatment center? Well, at the treatment center, I got there. The lifestyle, I was so, you know, I no longer had the drugs in my system, but I still wanted to live the lifestyle. I still wanted to get in there and have fun and play this gangster and, you know, talk slick to the girls and stuff like that. And I'm in treatment telling the counselors, I know, I know, I know, and I'm having sex in my bathroom in the treatment center. You know, so I'm still living the lifestyle, but I don't have the drugs in me. So consequently, I wasn't really paying a lot of attention in treatment. And when I got out of treatment the same day, my wife came, picked me up. I went and got high. We went straight to the dope house. So I stayed out about another month, maybe two. And I went right back to the same treatment center. And at that time, I was ready to quit. I was really ready. So you have to be ready. They cleaned. They needed to get me out of Dayton. And they did. They uh, sent me to the to Cincinnati, Ohio, to the Salvation Army. And there is when I got clean, and I stayed clean for a while until I started wanting to sell drugs again and get back out and start running the street and chasing women. You know, see, I forgot about the pain. See, the one thing about addiction is if we forget about the pain that it caused us, then we're subject to repeat the same thing over again. When you were very young, you also became, uh, you say, consumed by perversion. How does that happen with a young man? I do not know. <laughs> I swear, Steve, I do not know. All I know is that as a, as, as a child, um, I can remember my mom. You know, we all live, we're a family. We live in a house, and you hear things through the wall. I heard my mom and dad having sex, and I didn't know what they were doing, and I busted in the door one day and seen what they were doing. And I can remember now how that kind of aroused me. I mean, at four years old. And so I moved back to Dayton. We moved back to Dayton from St. Louis. This is in the early 60s after my baby brother was born. And there was a girl that lived down the street. Well, yeah, lived down the street, down and across the street. She was a couple years older than me. And she came over one day and she said she seen her mom and dad doing something. And would I like to do it? And I'm like, okay. And so she pulled my pants down and proceeded to fondle me, and we're kissing and stuff like that. And uh, I can remember liking the feeling. I didn't know what was going on, but I was rem- I remember liking it. And this went on for a whole summer. I mean, we went as far as, in my book I call it dry humping, where we got our clothes on and we're on my grandmother's bed and stuff like that. And this went on, and this led to me... Seeking her out, I mean, even to the point where after we moved away from that area, I was in elementary school in Jefferson Township, and I can remember skipping school in the third grade, getting on the city bus, and riding the bus down to where we used to live and waiting on her to get out of school. So that triggered a feeling that you just couldn't overcome. That's right. It and was the, like and it just that, And it just escalated as the older you it got. Did. The older I got, the more it escalated. I mean, I can remember going swimming and 
swimming underwater, pulling the girls' panties down and stuff like that. And just, I was just devious. I was into everything. I can tell you that as I got older, I was working at an elite store in Dayton, and I can remember this. I'm 25 at this time, and a guy comes in, and I'm writing this order up, and he says, Sawyer. He remembered my last name, right? And he told me where I used to live. I said, yeah, that's me. He said, man, you are a bad little boy. <laughs> and that was the first thing he remembered about me, you know. And that, and it made me feel kind of bad that somebody would, you know, that would be the first thing somebody would remember about me. And that, and I, I was just having fun, you know, doing what I wanted to do. But still, you know, I was out of order, and I can realize that. So what was the moment in time when you just knew you had to change? Um, 2005. Um, that's when I was at my very, very worst. I lost my house. I had a nice house. Uh, one year I had four cars. In 2004, I could walk out my back door and pick out whichever car I wanted to drive to work. I'm making $100,000 a year. Um, kids are in school and I'm just using like crazy, man, because that $1,000 a year I was making, I was paying my dope dealer like a credit card. And it was all because I wanted to live that lifestyle, you know, because I'm out, I'm running around with him, and we're drinking and partying and stuff like that. And uh, it was killing me. And then I lost my job May of 2005. And when I lost my job, that's when my world started crashing. And, you know, I used to think that uh, I used to be really pissed off because I lost that job. But I can see it now as God saving my life. Because if I would have kept that job, I would have been dead. Because I was making so much money that it allowed me to use however I wanted to use. And that's not a good thing. It's really not. So me losing that job was a blessing. So when I lost my house and my house was in foreclosure, I lost my cars. And, um, you know, things are just crazy. I'm driving around without car insurance. I have an accident. And it's just one bad thing happening after another. So November of 2005, I called a friend of mine here in Cincinnati, and I told him, I said, man, I'm ready to go to treatment. And at that point, he came and picked me up, and that's when it started over again. And this time, it was it was a, a real eye-opening experience for you, and you made yes, the changes to completely put this behind you. Exactly. Well, Timmy, exactly. congratulations, and also part of the proceeds of this book are going to do some good. What do you plan to do with uh, part of the proceeds of the book? Well, I'm going to help out some guys in the treatment center, the treatment center that I was in. I'm going to uh, contribute to that. I'm going to uh, contribute uh, money to a battered women's shelter, and I'm going to help out some under underprivileged children because they all need help. And, you know, in the treatment centers, you know, because, I sure caught, there's a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, but when I moved back to Dayton in 1982, there were some guys that I kind of helped get hooked on drugs, and and they're still messed up to this day, you know, and I really can't take responsibility for it because they had a choice in the matter. They could have got off of it just like I got off of it, but I still played a part in it. Uh, there's guys in the treatment facility that need help. I mean, they've been on the street. They don't have a spiritual background that I have. They have none of the skills that I have. So I feel like it's my duty to give back to them. I mean, with my time and my finances. Also, because of all the women that I misled and used and stuff like that, 
I feel that I have a need to kind of donate something to a battered women's shelter and stuff like that because there's a lot of men out here just just misusing and abusing women and not only uh, mentally but physically too. You know, and I think sometimes I think the mental abuse could be a lot worse. You know, but physically and then the children, all the children out here that need parents and stuff like that and just are just thrown away. I can see it. So I go downtown Cincinnati. These people are just out here, and they just have nowhere to go, and nobody cares about them. Well, Timmy, tell us how to get your book. Of course, you can get it at authorhouse.com. You can also get it from uh, barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com, and it's going to be in the bookstore sooner or later, real soon. It's going to be on all the bookstore shelves soon. Well, thanks, Timmy, for being on Author Talk. Well, Steve, thanks for having me. That was Timmy Ray. He is the author of his book, The Life and Death of a Playa.